Okay, we are starting Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, reading from verse 1. Now when they had arrived, I'm sorry, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was, there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and arise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were, seeing that they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities, and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Okay, so Paul, you, you might remember when, when Paul was in Philippi, uh, some trouble arose because he had cast a, a demon out of a young lady. It caused some financial stress to the masters of that, that demon-possessed girl because she made a lot of money for them fortune-telling. And so then they were beaten, they were thrown in prison in Philippi, and then after being imprisoned and beaten... Uh, illegally, because they were Roman citizens, the authorities of that city begged them to leave. So, so uh, uh, Paul went ahead and left. And you'll see there, there's a change in, verse, in, verse, in chapter 17, verse 1. It says, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia. And prior to that, in Acts 16, Luke was with them and everything was we. And now Luke actually stayed back in Philippi to pastor the church there in Philippi. So Luke is no longer with them, the writer of this, this account. So at this point now he's receiving his information by, by uh, talking with others as to when, he, when he received his information to write this. So Luke stays behind in Philippi and Paul go, goes on with the others. So you've got Paul and Silas and Timothy. And then in, in verse... In uh, uh, verse 1 and 2, it says Paul found a synagogue, and as was his practice. So remember in Romans, it says the gospel is first to the Jews. And it's not the gospel was first to the Jews. Every city that he went into, this was his practice. He went to the synagogue and he started to preach. This was often Jesus' practice as well. So Paul went into the synagogue and says for three Sabbaths, so for three weeks, because the Sabbath day is on Saturday, so for three weeks... He, he, is, uh, uh, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, and so he's using the Scriptures as his base. Because he's dealing with Jews, and Jews took the Hebrew Scriptures, and there was no New Testament at this time. So he's using the Hebrew Scriptures themselves, and explaining Jesus to them, explaining the Messiah. And I have heard messages, a whole series, not just a single messages, whole series on... Uh, uh, 
Jesus Christ, the Messiah, throughout the Old Testament. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Remember on the road to Emmaus, he be, it says Jesus, when he had risen from the dead, began explaining to them the things concerning the Messiah from the Scriptures, from the Old Testament Scriptures. So it can be done. But this is important to watch because when he dealt with Jews, he used the Scriptures as his base. When we deal with Christians, we use the Scriptures as our base of authority. When Paul dealt with, with non-believers, he preached to them very differently than when he preached to the Jews. The message was the same, but the context in which he brought them in, and we're going to see this in a couple other cities from now. Here He'll go into Berea and then into Athens. When he goes into Athens... He's dealing not with the Jews, but he's dealing with philosophers, with the Greek and Stoics philosophers. And he approaches them very differently. So to have different approaches for different kinds of people, for different people groups, is a good thing. And this is why when you get into missions, you learn specifically how to deal with the people group that you're going to. Because everybody has a different context. And if you go in, you know, to central China and you start using the Old Testament as your source. You know, there's no reference here. And so this is what Paul did. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence about the Christ, that he had to suffer, rise again from the dead. So he talked about the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of the Messiah, and then saying, Jesus Christ is the one I'm sharing, this, uh, the one I'm referencing. And it says in verse 4, Some of them were persuaded... And joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. So some of them were, were and, and, and uh, let me just mention, I'm not sure if Timothy stayed back in Philippi along with, uh, along with uh, um, Luke. I, I read it, but, I, but uh, I don't remember, but we'll find out. But I know Luke had stayed back. So Paul and Silas had shared with them, and it says, Some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks. So there were some Jews that believed. And remember, there is a distinction in Scripture between Jews, those who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those who follow Jewish practices, in other words, converts to Judaism, which were called Gentiles of the Gate, for example. And, and it says that uh, uh, many of them, being Greeks, God-fearing Greeks, meaning that they were follow the Jewish practices. Here they were in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Many of those believed. So there was actually even a greater openness among that group of people within the synagogue. Many of them believed. So uh, some Jews, some of the, the, the ones that had converted to Judaism, many of them believed. And among them was a number of leading women. So you had many leading women in the community among the, the, the God-fearers, they had actually followed the Jewish practices. Now they came along. So, so this was not just a conversion of the poor. It was a conversion of all classes of people. All classes here. And so it makes specific note that there were women, of, uh, leading women of the city. And so there were leadership positions of those women, or they were, they were uh, uh, wives of very important people. In verse 5, and the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some of the wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob. Uh, look at the reason for the problems to start arising. So Paul is going back week after week, sharing with these people for at least three weeks. Many people end up converting. 
And then it's out of jealousy that they start coming against this ministry. I have seen this many times, not just among Jews, but among Christians. And, and uh, uh, jealousy about the growth of another church. Jealousy about the growth of another group. You would do well to remember this. To say, God bless them. God, I pray they do well. To hear about the growth of another church, another body of Christ, another campus group. Bless them in the name of the Lord. They're doing something right. It is a good thing. And it's very easy to say, well, you know, they don't go deep like we go deep. You know, and, and, and to make all sorts of excuses for the other's growth. You're better off not doing that. You're better off praying for them and blessing them in the name of the Lord. Just go ahead and bless them in the name of the Lord without getting jealous about the growth of another group. And so they, they, they got some wicked men from the marketplace. They formed this mob and they start looking for Paul and Silas. And they had gone to the house of this man named Jason because Jason had welcomed them. and They were staying at Jason's house. But they go there in verse 6. It says they didn't find them. So they were dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities. Uh, and look at what they say in verse 6. These men who have upset the whole world have come here also. Now that's a bit of an overreaction. But when there's accusations being thrown around, we tend to, to overreact and exaggerate in, exaggeration, in explaining things. So when I'm, when I'm having some deep discussion with Shireen, you know, I'll say, uh, uh, well, you always do this. She says, I always do it? Always? Well, a lot of the time. You know, so we all have a tendency to exaggerate when we're making our case. And they were really exaggerating. The whole world had not been upset by these guys. And it says, and Jason has welcomed them, and they, act, they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Now remember, Paul wasn't witnessing in the marketplace. He's going to witness in the marketplace first in Athens. But here, he's actually witnessing to them in the synagogue. It's very specific, in the synagogue. But they say that... that uh, um, He's teaching these decrees contrary to Caesar. So remember, in Rome, conversions were not allowed. So Paul was very careful what he did. He wasn't bringing to them a new religion. He was saying, this is the fulfillment of Judaism. And then when he goes into Athens, he has a very clever way of introducing the gospel in a way that's not a new religion. Really smart the way he does that, but we'll look at that later. But, so they, they drag Jason out, and, uh, and they, they, they say this is contrary to, to uh, Caesar. Now what he's done is he's got the magistrates, the authorities in that village, have to deal with this. They have to, because they're saying that Jason uh, uh, is complicit in this. He has welcomed them. And now this is an offense against Caesar. So if you magistrates do not go along with this, then you're complicit in the treason against Caesar. You see what I mean? How clever their argument was, was to hook the magistrates into this. It's not easy to be on the accusing end of things. And think about poor Jason here. You know, he had just welcomed these guys into his home. 
And now he's being brought, brought up before them. And in verse 8, they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. So the city authorities had to then deal with this. Um, so if, if the city's authorities didn't deal with it, they, then they're complicit in this treason. And it says, And when they received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So a pledge was given. Something was given. And in verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So because traveling at night was unusual because of its danger, it says that the city was still after Paul and Silas. So they had to leave by night. It says the brethren immediately. That tells us that a church was established. So there's now brethren. So something happened in this three-week three period. That a church was established... And now Paul has to leave. So some pledge was given. Something was put forth. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18, Paul talks about how he was unable to ever return to Thessalonica. He never came back. Probably because a pledge was given. Jason, to get out of this, had to give some pledge, some monetary agreement or something put forth to say, okay, never again. And Paul never returned to Thessalonica. Uh, uh, and this suffering that occurred in Thessalonica then extended from Paul to the church in Thessalonica because in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, 3, 1-5, and 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, and 7, Paul references now the, the, the suffering that came forth to the Thessalonian Christians. So they suffered after Paul left. Uh, some other things that come forth in the epistles... When Paul was, was uh, in Thessalonica, he was working with his own hands. So what was he doing for these three weeks? He was generating his own income. He was working in the marketplace. Because in, in, uh, um, in Philippians 4, 14 and 15, it talks about, Paul says to the Philippians, you sent gifts for me more than once when I was in Thessalonica. And, and, uh, but before this, Paul worked with his own hands because in 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 10, Paul talks to the Thessalonians, hey, when I was with you, 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 I didn't even take a piece of your bread. I made all my own money when I was there. Until the Philippians from the town previous were sending gifts on my behalf. So all of this begins to come out in the epistles that Paul wrote. And then uh, uh, some of the, it, it, it actually gives reference to some of the people who are converted in other parts of uh, in other parts of Acts, and in other parts of the epistles. So, then Paul travels 50 miles from Thessalonica to Berea. When he gets to Berea, Paul and Silas get to Berea by night. They go immediately into the synagogue of the Jews in verse 10. So again, into the synagogue of the Jews. That was their normal practice. In verse 11, Now these were more noble-minded than, the, than those in Thessalonica, For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Interesting. Interesting passage. So they get to Berea. They start sharing with the Jews in Berea. But it says these Jews were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. These were different. It says that they received the word, meaning that they were willing to listen to the word. 
with great eagerness, and then they examined the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And therefore, because they had examined the Scriptures daily, many of them believed, and there were many prominent among them, including many Greek women and men. So again, converts to Judaism, those who had followed the practices of Judaism, that were now uh, uh, proselytes to, to Judaism, were now following the teachings of Paul and Silas. What if you had worked really hard and gathered a lot of information, lots of information on a topic, and you stood up to introduce this topic to a friend, and you said one, one sentence about the new topic that you're introducing. They said, you don't have to tell me anymore. I believe you. Well, that's sort of a blind faith. And the Scriptures never call us to a blind faith. There are historical facts behind this. And, and, uh, uh, and then what if you go through and you explain all of this data, and the person says, I don't care about your data, I don't believe. Well, that's equally frustrating. To, to present something that has enormous fact behind it, and for somebody to say, ah, I don't care about your facts, I just don't believe. Well, why don't you listen and, and do an evaluation based on that? So, the Scriptures say these people were really noble-minded because they listened and then they examined the Scriptures daily to see if it was true. And this is the thought that I want to follow up on. The ability to examine the Scriptures and to see if something is true. Will we really take this Word of God and to say, this is true in my life. The context in which Paul spoke to the Jews was through the Scriptures. That was the context. The context in which we teach is through the Scriptures. This is the way I try to teach it. This is what the Scriptures say. You could say, oh, you don't have to preach to me. Whatever's in the Bible, I believe. Well, that's not very good. Because the Scriptures want us to have some context for our belief. Nor do they, do they want us to respond, ah, I don't want to read any of that, and just walk away and say, I don't believe. We are to believe based on the context of what's here, and it should change that which happens in our life. It should change the things that go on in our life. And there, there, there are things that we experience, things that, that uh, uh, happen in our life, that we're to change and we're to, to, to begin to modify as a result of what the Scriptures say. So let me, let, me, let me just touch a couple of issues that may, that may speak to us a little bit. May speak to us about, about what's right as college students. So I'll consider myself a college student for a while. Look in, 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 in 1 Corinthians chapter... Uh, here it is. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is talking about marriage. And he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 16, he says, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now turn to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? 
So why do I pick these verses as I say, let's look at the context of Scripture speaking into our lives? Because this, the portions that I have read, are common portions that snag believers in their obedience to the Scriptures. And it is that sometimes young women will want to date a certain guy because the guy's a nice guy, but he's an unbeliever and they know it, but they want to date him anyway. And let me just say, you're absolutely free to date anybody you want. You're free to do that. I mean, a woman can date another woman if she wants to. I'm not going to stop you and the church isn't going to stop you. You can do whatever you want. A man could date another man. But the scriptures talk about a context here. And the context for us as believers are the scriptures. And I say this to you because I don't know that a young lady here is dating a non-Christian guy. Nor do I know that there's a guy dating a non-Christian young girl. I'm just saying it is a common thing that happens in the body of Christ. And so the scripture gives us commandments and instructions around this. Specific things. And so sometimes these relationships will lead up to marriage. And you say, well, you you know, you're about to marry an unbeliever. You're about to do this. And this is not right according to the scriptures. Because the scriptures say that the believer should not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. It says it that we're not to be bound together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness and lawlessness? And if the woman says, well, you know, the guy's really nice, and he's agreed that we can bring up our kids in the church. So everything's okay now. Well, it says, how do you know, O wife, that you're going to save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, that you're going to save your wife? So in other words, you don't know that they're going to become converted. I've dealt with this issue in my own family. And, and uh, uh, people that were very close to me. And I saw a believing girl marrying an unbeliever. And I said to the believing girl, how can you do this knowing that this young man is an unbeliever? And she had a hissy fit. And I said it in front of her mother and father as well. And, and, uh, and her mother... Her mother came to her defense as well, saying, we love him for what he is and not for what he isn't. Now, that sounds righteous. It does. <laughs> but it's still unscriptural. And then I talked to the pastor who was about to perform the marriage the next day at the, at the, uh, because I was in the wedding. I was in the wedding party and I sat at the same table with the pastor and his wife. And I said to the pastor, how can you perform this marriage? Because she is a believer, he is not. This is against the word of God. What would you like me to do? I'm asking you, you students, would you like me to just keep my mouth shut and smile? Or would you like me to say, this is the context around which we believe. This should mean something to us. It's got to mean something to somebody. It means something to God. It should mean something to us. So I asked the pastor, how can you perform this wedding? Because she's a believer, he is not. And he swallowed. And he said, well, we believe that this young man is quite sincere and this is a good way to try to fold him into the fold of the church. His wife came to his defense and in not nearly as gracious a manner and, uh, uh, um, and it was almost the audacity that I had to speak the word of God to a pastor. Well, if a pastor can't receive the Word of God, then who can? 
And uh, uh, anyway, they went, they went ahead with the wedding because the young man agreed, you, you know, that he, he had been visiting the church with her and going with her on Sundays. It wasn't a month after that they had been married that he stopped going to the church with her. And a few years later, when there were kids now, he never went to church with them. And a few years later, he ended up seeing another woman, divorcing her, and has never gone back to the church, and left him with a tremendous resentment for the church. He resented it. Because if we, as believers, don't live up to these scriptures, the unbelievers see hypocrisy and they say the stuff is a bunch of nonsense. You see what I mean? So if we don't take this seriously, then unbelievers are really turned off. Because it's hypocritical. And the reason I bring up this topic is because this is a common topic that hooks college students. So I could have taken many topics. But this is a common one. Because there are so many nice young women in the body of Christ who can't find commensurate nice young men in the body of Christ. And they find unbelievers and they start dating them. They know it's probably not best, but they kind of feel like, He's really close. Well, really close means really close to being pregnant. (laughs) Either you are or you aren't. There's not a really close. And so the Scriptures need to mean something to us. So Paul used the context of Scriptures in our lives. This is the context in which we are to function. Turn to Proverbs chapter 3. I just got back from Europe and I was... I was reading in Proverbs and in, in this hotel room, and I thought, this is amazing. I have never seen this before. And I even emailed Shireen. I said, I found such and such in Proverbs chapter 3. See if you can find it. In, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13, it says, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. And by his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies dripped with dew. My son, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, so they will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you'll not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor of the onslaught of of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. So in this portion, it talks about wisdom. And it talks about the fruit of wisdom. It is this book that gives us wisdom. You want to know the instruction? It is all here. When I got saved, the young man shared with me, who shared the gospel with me, he said, if you read this book, you won't fall away. He says, I've known people to drift away from Christ. And I always ask them, were you reading the Scriptures daily? And they all say no. That is easy. So I set my heart to read this book 
every day. And for nearly 30 years, I have read this book every day. This is the book from which I get wisdom. The, the secret here is, look in verse 18. It says, she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Remember the tree of life? The tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. There were two trees in the Garden of Eden. God set up a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. If they had eaten of the tree of life, they would have lived forever. That's what it said. Eat of this tree, you live forever. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil they ate from. And what did God do? He immediately set an angel to guard the tree of life so that they couldn't touch it. He did not want them to live forever in that fallen state. Well, look what happens. The tree of life is going to come back. We're going to see it again in, in the book of Revelation. But it says right here, this is a tree of life. This is what I emailed Shereen. I said, see if you can find the tree of life in Proverbs chapter 3. Wisdom is a tree of life. You will live spiritually forever if you take hold of the wisdom that's in this book. It is so good. This is why Paul said he used the context of this book to share with those in Thessalonica. Then he used the context of this book to share with those who were, who, who were in Berea. And it says they were very noble-minded people because they didn't just accept it blindly and say, oh, okay, I believe it. Nor did they just reject it. They said, let us see. And it says that when they went to look, therefore they believed. If somebody starts reading this book every day, they will become a Christian. They will. I was speaking with a Muslim man, and he was saying that, that he doesn't want... Muslims reading the New Testament. Because whenever Muslims read the New Testament, they end up becoming Christians. It has that capacity. You read this book, you start following Christ. You value this book, your life will be good. It says, and happy are those who, ta- who, who, who hold her fast. If you take these principles in this book, you will be very happy in life. So I take one example, one example, and if it bothers you, maybe because you're toying with dating an unbeliever, and I'm glad then that it bothers you, the Word of God should do this, because I want to spare you that pain. I want to spare you that pain. Let me paint the picture for what happens with many women I see that marry unbelieving men. The men before very long, stop going to church. The children come along, and yes, he's agreed to the fact that they can grow up in the church, but he demonstrates no church to them. And they look up to their father. And then he starts taking the boys fishing on Sundays. And the mother is going through contortions. It's driving her crazy. Because this guy is just has no respect for the Word of God, and she wants so much to have somebody teaching the Word of God to the kids. This is a typical scenario that occurs in families, when the man is not a believer. I've seen it so many times. The amazing thing about sin is, there is not an immediate destruction because of our sin. The Bible even talks about that. God is very patient. And I've learned to wait a decade. I've learned to wait a decade. So when people are doing wrong, I'll warn them. And say, look, it's not bothering me. It's not affecting my life. And I will stand back for a decade knowing that within a decade, there will be great pain as a result of these actions. Some men say, you know, and, and, and I'll point out to them that there's some cheating in their life. 
in their business. They say, well, you know, I've got a wife, I've got a kids, I'm doing it for them. You're doing it for them. You're disobeying God for them. You watch. In another decade, your children will know the hypocrisy and they will be walking away from the Lord. You're not doing it for them. You're harming them. You're doing it for yourself. There are principles that are in this book. Take this book and begin to meditate on it and respect it. It is true and it is right. And if the pain doesn't hit you right away, you say, I'd much rather be with this unbeliever than to be with nobody. Remember, in a decade, you will be thinking very differently. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the Word of God, for the truth of it. Lord, thank you that the Bereans, it says, were noble-minded because they took the Scriptures, they listened to the words of Paul, and then they examined it daily to see if these things were true. And as a result, many believed. Father, I pray for these young people that they would love the Word of God, that they would respect it, and that it would be a tree of life to them so that they would live forever in a spiritual state of being close to You because of the Word of God. Father, I pray for the young person here who is dating an unbeliever. I pray, Father, that You so turn their hearts that there would be respect and an honor for the Word of God. Father, I pray for Your blessings to abound. Your grace upon these young people. In the name of Jesus. Amen.